Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Let me see. I'm John Verhoeven, and I've worked as a cop. I was in forensics. I was in the air wing. World class. And I was a New South Wales firefighter. Top shelf. Have I... Have I left anything out? No, that's all I did. Oh, wait. When my dad and mum were exhausted from too much death, destruction and adventure after years in the emergency services, they did something totally normal. They decided to run a funeral home. In this season of Loose Units, you'll find out what it was like to grow up with parents who ran an actual funeral home, prepared bodies, dealt with grieving families, and who confronted death on a daily basis. It'll be harrowing, thrilling, and loose. Welcome to Loose Units Dead Serious. Hello, and welcome to Loose Units Dead Serious. Every week, my dad, John, and I sit down, and Dad talks about his time working at Kinsella Funeral Homes in the 90s. Dad, as you know, used to be a cop and a firefighter, but this season has been basically just Dad talking to us about stuff that he encountered whilst he was dealing with the dead. Now, this is the final episode of Dead Serious. It's the final episode of Loose Units Dead Serious. So I guess the question is, God, there's so many questions for you, Dad. But one of the things I wanted to talk through with you is because I've never seen a dead body before. Lots and lots of listeners have been getting in touch, as you know, and talking about their encounters with death. And I just can't even begin to process how you have dealt with so much death in your life and how you've just kind of faced it head on. Now, a couple of weeks back, I think you told a story about when you were a little kid and you had to, um, you know, like touch your grandfather's dead body. You had to like, they brought you in to kind of see, you've just been seeing a lot of, a lot of death. Um, do you remember the first time you dealt with death in a kind of, I don't want to say professional capacity, but in, in the capacity of being a emergency services worker? I'm assuming it's um, sometime during the police force, right? Paul, firstly, um, I'd like to say to you that this has been a wonderful uh, season. I've enjoyed doing it. Have you? Oh, it's been great. It's, it, look, it's, it's been pretty confronting. Mm. Um, it's, you know, it's hard to stay positive sometimes. <laughs> to look at one of the weird things, Dad, is that obviously, like, 2020 has been a really stressful year. It's, it's odd how much joy I've gotten from talking about death during a year as depressing as this, but maybe it's just a kind of unifying experience. I'm not sure what it is, but I've, I've really enjoyed this season. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Paul, um, when I went to a particular high school on the uh, northern beaches yeah. that has since been demolished, and in its place they've put up um, these very poorly designed sort of cube-like 
unimaginative houses. Mm-hmm. Um, I had an opportunity to somehow or other. I just got really fascinated in St John's ambulance. Now yeah. I know that in some states in Australia, the St John's ambulance play a major, a critical role. Um, like in in Sydney and New South Wales, we've got our permanent um, New South Wales ambulance service. But in other states, um, you know, they've got their own ambulances, and it's pretty pretty full on. So I had an opportunity through a friend, yeah, to um, at the local youth club. Um, they had, I think it was a Tuesday night. They used to have St John's ambulance, um, sort of a bit of a, like a like scouts. Like wait, wait, do you was this? Hang on, is this during high school? Yeah, I was. I was um, probably. I guess I was about fourteen. Hang on, are you about? Because, sorry, this is just such new information. Because I just, uh, I assumed that your first time working in the emergency services was in the police force, and now you're telling me that when you were fourteen, you were in St John's ambulance. Is this yeah, right? Yeah, it was like it was like. Um, God, it sounds a bit weird, yeah, uh, listeners. But I don't, I don't want to call it boys' brigade. It sounds so wanky. It's a bit odd. But um, so you've joined the St John's ambulance at the age of fourteen, which is really weird because you didn't tell me this during the writing of Loose Units, which meant that I feel like it would have shaped it significantly if I'd known that you had actually done emergency service work, even in like a kind of like a what is it like an internship? Is it a is um, it, look? It was, what is it? It was it was just unreal. It was like right. I mean the professional football matches down at um, Brookvale Oval. Mm. With um, like professional first grade rugby league, oh, the St Manly John's C, Ambulance, right. yeah, yeah. So St John's Ambulance um, on the weekends, whenever a football player, um, I mean, there's a this is like the big league in terms of that's a bit of a pun, isn't it? Big league, rugby league. Yeah. Um, but whenever a player went down, like today, they have staff involved in the team, like medics that run on. But back in the 1970s. St. John's Ambulance would run on in their little black uniforms. They weren't necessarily right. little uniforms because that yeah. sort of makes it sound a bit weird. Um, and you'd run on with your first aid kit. And I can to this very, very day remember one of the key ingredients or the key things we used to spray on professional rugby league players, like if they'd bruised a knee or just gone down and were in agony... Yeah. We had this chemical in a can called Skefron. And it's isn't it weird the things you can remember from so long ago? And what it used to do, it used to the spray would come out of this can. It was so cold that it would literally it was acting like a local anesthetic, it would literally freeze their skin. Now I don't know from a medical perspective um whether that was such a great thing to do, but the uh the rugby league players seemed to I won't say they enjoyed being frozen. Um, sort of very localized, probably mm. on the on the cusp of getting frostbite. And I used to just love spraying it. I used to just to spray it from arsehole to breakfast, so to speak. And um, <laughs> look, it was just so funny. But I I really did like the uniform. It was a black uniform, um, and the the thought of um, just being able to participate. But the school that I went to had a very very good rugby league team. They were uh, New South Wales champions. Mm-hmm. So I somehow scammed. I don't know how I did this, but I've always been a bit of a scammer. I, I see a sort of a, you know, an angle and I exploit it. Yeah. And I got the school, that's Beacon Hill High School, to pay for the most in- amazing um, first aid kit. 
and I got to go up to the local chemist. Funnily enough, remember, listeners, the chemist that's grandson was the crossbow killer. Isn't that weird? Oh, shit. Yes, 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 yes. So yes. I'd go up to the local uh, pharmacist. Yeah. And I basically had an open checkbook as a 14 or 15-year-old um, and charged everything to the um, the high school. I mean, I just, I just can't imagine how I managed to do this. I'm surprised that I didn't also add onto the list a Timex watch because I, was, I used to love watches and the, the, the chemist sold Timex watches uh, aside from all the stuff that I needed for the kit. But the kit, um, and then I would run on during the big games at school when the football footballers, they were senior guys in year, the, the equivalent of year 11 and 12, back in the old fifth, sixth form. So I'd run on and, you know, apply bandages, all that sort of stuff. And I really just enjoyed sort of giving service and I had a feeling that I'd probably become a maybe a paramedic or or a fiery or a police officer. I didn't quite know at that at that age, but I just knew that I wanted to... I just thought it was fantastic. And um, there was a guy at our school who was really dodgy. He was he was a criminal and he, he ended up being arrested and pulled out of the school by the local detectives because what? he was... Yeah, because he was organising... I mean, he was a really heavy crim, this guy. Um, I used to kind of use him in our group as an enforcer, um, sort of a heavy man... I used to get other people to do all the, the dirty work, so to speak. But what, what he was doing, he was actually planning a robbery on a bank in DY. He was going to be tunnelling to this bank. It was all fairly weird. and But he had um, some stolen items that he was trying to pawn at school. This is probably, how old was I? Maybe 14. But one of the things that he had was a little first aid kit. I, I to this very to this day I remember exactly what it looked like. It was red and white vinyl with a little gold cross on top. It was the size of probably half a laptop, so it was really small. But it, it had and it had all the ingredients, all all the bandages, tweezers, scissors, everything you could possibly need uh, in a minor sort of incident. And I put it in Mum and Dad's car, and I kept it on the back behind the back seat. Okay. And, I used to, and I just said to mum and dad, look, if ever we come across a car accident, I can sort of really, you know, get get to work. And by then I was perhaps 15. Um, and I used to work down at the local shopping centre on Thursday nights pushing trolleys um, at a shopping centre. Mum had picked me up at nine o'clock. And then one night in summer, we were coming up a very steep road and there was a bit of a traffic sort of delay. And we came across a motorcyclist who had come off his motorbike and his head had gone into the gutter and there what? was there was blood. Um, I'd never ever seen so much blood. And I um, I quickly grabbed my little first aid kit. I was there was no ambulance there. And I opened up the kit next to the guy and I had bandages and I didn't I was I, I don't think I was sort of stressed. I felt fairly calm. And um, he was on the verge of dying. And um I remember uh, basically being with him, and my mother was standing. I remember looking up, mum, at, looking up at mum, and she looked kind of, she sort of looked sad and proud, in, proud that I or that her son was able to do something. I didn't do a lot, obviously, but um, I was with this guy, and he passed away. Um, so that was my first or second experience. There was my grandfather when I was three, and then this guy, um, and that gave me a very strong sense of wanting to serve the community. And, Wait, um, so yeah. how have I never heard this story? Like, 
Because when I always thought that you saw your first dead body in the police force, I just you know I thought that made sense. Mm. But no, well that's why Paul with the new season going back to the beginning, yeah, chapter by chapter, I think it's fair to say that we're going to unearth some more uh, information. This will absolutely change the context of things. So you, so you're because if people recall, you're. I mean, your mum and your family didn't really want you to join the police force because your aunt Franny had been involved in um, anti-Vietnam protests and had mm. been kind of treated very poorly by the police. So I, I always just assumed that part of it was they didn't want you kind of getting into emergency services because it was dangerous as well. But you're saying that grandma stood there and watched you kind of like cradle this dying man on the side mm. of the road. Yeah. Did you Did you feel a kind of a sense of accomplishment did you feel good after having tried good. to help i felt really good and for um for probably um a year after that night yeah every single time i drove or with my parents up that hill you could see the blood that had soaked in and stained the concrete oh. and it was there for a long long time and if i was to um you know if you and tegan were up here today or i could drive you and i could pull up and show you the precise to within millimetres where his body lay next to his bike. And that was fairly traumatic for me because, um, you know, bikes are dangerous and I ended up having lots of motorbikes and lots of accidents. And I had a really, really bad accident. I've got a permanent scar on my right knee, a terrible, terrible accident I had on that very same road on the other Mm. side of the road coming home on a Sunday night. So, you know, isn't life funny? Um, so then a few months after that, we were in Forestville near um, a hospital for pets. Yep. And there was another accident and a guy went through a windscreen um, and then back into his seat. So serious head injuries. I used that same first aid kit. I felt a little bit more um, confident and I was able to, um, being first responder, I know that sounds ridiculous as a 15-year-old, but at least I had the first aid kit. I'd been with St. John's Ambulance probably for six months. And um, and I, I loved it. I, I loved that whole scene. And then I um, pulled out of the St. John's Ambulance um, in my sort of mid-teens. Um, probably only did it for a few years. And then um, and then the, the next time I saw a dead body was at the Glebe Morgue. At the in the first, well, yeah, there's a very very famous story in Loose Units about you going to the Glebe Morgue. Glebe Morgue, Glebe Morgue. That's very, that's grim. Mm. So it feels like okay. I, I mentioned at the start of the show that I have not seen a dead body and that I would have really struggled. Um, now, so you've seen, you were dealing with people in your capacity as you know like a volunteer, you know St John's Ambulance cadet or whatever, and then you join the police force. And then you join the fire brigade and you're a safety inspector, you're in forensics. And then for some reason, you continue to throw yourself into the face of death and work at Kinsella Funeral Homes. I guess given that this is the last episode of Dead Serious, I would like to find out what it was that made you say, okay, I've had my fill of death. Like you, you clearly got to a point where you were kind of maxed out. So I'd like to find out what it was that pushed, whether it was one thing or multiple stories that kind of pushed you into quitting the, the like this line of work, basically. As listeners may also know, um, I joined the Beacon Hill Primary School Band and the only instrument left was the tuba. Oh, now, 
you played the trumpet on a cruise liner for a weird strip show through a small hole in the wall. Remember that weird story? Mm, that was Cinderella. That was Cinderella. Okay, great. Yeah, but like an erotic retelling of Cinderella. Okay, yeah, like very- she was topless. I, yeah, I but assume like, she was. I fairly I true to the source material, we assume. But, um, okay, so you play the trumpet. I, I don't... I mean... I didn't think you played the trumpet as an adult. I thought you stopped when you were a teenager. I did, but but when I first wanted to join a band, mm. I the only instrument they had was this huge, massive tuba. And we lived a long way away from the school, and I thought, I've got to get into the band. So I said, yeah, I'll play the tuba. And then I slowly, over years, went from the tuba to the euphonium, to the tenor horn, to the flugelhorn, to the cornet. And then finally, when we went to England... My parents bought me a phenomenal trumpet. It cost them a shitload. I studied um, my exams in England through the Royal College of Music in London, and I was, dare I say, not a bad trumpeter. Played on both the journeys, or or the journey coming back from um, England to Australia via South Africa. That was a four-week trip. Played those recitals... um, and also played at concerts on the ship. Um, but what happened was we used to do a few funerals at Kinsella's that involved um, war vets, um, you know, diggers. And uh, this is kind of all, in a way, leading up to my final decision over time because you can only take so much um, sort of stress and death and sadness and all those, those ingredients are all there, believe you me, in the funeral industry. Mm. And one, um, I think this, some of the saddest funerals that I ever attended, which had a lot of pathos and just absolutely, they were really, um, they just made me feel about the fragility of life and what it must be like to die alone and to die lonely and... Uh, so we did this particular funeral one day and we had to convey this uh, digger. He'd fought in the Second World War. Mm-hmm. And um, we dressed him in a suit and he, we put his little hat in the coffin and we put his um, medals on his on his uh, chest pocket and... Um, we conveyed him to the chapel and it was a I knew it was going to be a really small funeral because we'd booked one of the tiny chapels. Mm. As everyone knows, there's the north, south, east, west, north being massive, and they sort of go down in size. And this was at the back of the crematorium. It was around about eleven in the morning. And we got the uh, coffin out of the um out of the back of the hearse. Yeah. And we went into the little chapel. And there was no one there. Not one person went to his funeral. And um, I knew that he'd um, been in the war. So I took it upon myself to bring my trumpet with me. Oh, God. And um, I stood with my three colleagues. um, And as they committed the body, we all know how the body's committed, that button. And I played the last post. And... um, yeah, that was pretty pretty sad. Because so uh, you you stood there alone and played look, with my three it, colleagues. Did you? I mean, how long had it been since you played the trumpet? Did you? Uh, it was a long time, 
And if I can sort of uh, add a little bit of um, sort of black humor into this event, um, because Paul, you cleverly um, and perhaps unwittingly said to me how long had it been since I'd played. Um, anyone that knows anything about brass instruments knows that you've got what's called your embouchure, which is your lip, and you develop a very, very hard lip. Um, it's, a, it's a lip you develop over years. That's If you look at Louis Armstrong and all the great trumpeters, they, they could reach notes so high, and that's just through tightening up um, their lips. And now I hadn't played for some time, um, and I guess the funny part of this story, or poignant part of this story, Paul, is that I didn't play particularly well. Um, I'd lost my lip, so to speak. That was my concern, yes. Yeah. Um, but the good news is there wasn't a crowd to uh, to to sort of critique my playing. Okay. But I, okay. did, I did my best. <laughs> and um, I remember looking over at my colleagues, uh, three, three of the guys, and they were being a little bit sort of, let, shall we say, I didn't think they were paying the respect to this particular person. Even though there was no one there, they kind of thought they could sort of slacken off a bit. And I remember stopping playing mm. and I said to these guys, I said, Guys, this is, come on, this is serious. Let's just pay the respect this person deserves and try and make it as, as special an occasion. And it, was, and it was quite surreal and it affected me. Um, and, and that was just to say goodbye to a person that you don't know but has served your country and to die without one person being there is... Really, really, you almost wish as a wish that you could bring in a renter crowd. Yeah, just people that could just in in Japan they they employ professional mourners. Did you know that? Uh, I know professional mourners were a very like very very common thing back in you know Roman times. I just I didn't think that was still a thing yeah, that's, in Japan. Uh... Yeah, there are people that that's their job. Right. Okay. They are slightly melodramatic for effect, but like wailing and gnashing of teeth and whatnot. Correct. Yeah. 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 It's okay. So you you basically, you know, you did your due diligence, but at the same time, you're out of practice, and you know your lip muscles had kind of gone a bit slack, and you did mm. an okay version of the last post. Yeah, it was the gesture's okay. lovely. Yep. So that, okay, so being at the funeral of a um, of a serviceman who died in service of his country, and having no one show up, I assume would have been. I mean, was that the straw that broke the camel's back and made you finish up at Kinsella, or was it something else? Or was it or was it one of many things? How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. 
That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. Um, something that I haven't mentioned, and I'm doing this a little bit on the, on the sly because um, I haven't mentioned this to Christine, but her cousin, um, which means, Paul, a relative of yours, yes, who's still alive today, he was a gentle soul, and um, he worked for a funeral home on the very upper north shore of Sydney. Uh-huh. Can't quite remember the suburb. But one day, um, I met him at the crematorium and in a rather sort of offhanded um, sort of way of telling me a little story, uh, he told me that at the particular funeral home that he worked at, it was not uncommon for them to, prior to um, sealing the coffin, they would put rubbish in the the coffin with, with the deceased. Wait, 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 wait. So, you, is this real? That's what he serious? told me. So he, he had no reason to. He's he's certainly not a bullshit artist. But does that not mean that people are getting garbage in, like burned garbage ashes, along with the ashes of? Look, their that's the story ones? that he told me. Um, do I believe the story one hundred percent? Because there's no reason for him. Right, and so he he felt that he was. I mean, I was technically a relative. Yeah. Um, and he was a, he was a very wholesome, um, gentle. Mm. decent um, guy, you know, he was working there part-time. That's probably why I'm being fairly uh, vague about um, the funeral home that he worked for. But, I mean, I would assume that actually if it was happening at one place, it's probably pre- a oh, bit more common I, I, I don't know, than... Paul. I, I think I can't imagine, but, you know, he okay. told me that they would actually empty the waste paper baskets into the, uh, into the coffin. So, uh, yeah, that was fairly disturbing. And then... Um, Listeners, you need to bear in mind that Christine and I, we were running Kinsella Funeral Homes and we were making for the Kinsella family um, back then. Our turnover was around about, let's say, between ten and $15,000 a day. Jesus Christ. Um, and if you did a big Italian funeral, uh, those funerals could cost twenty five, thirty thousand, 30000 And there's a lot of profit in there, believe you me particularly when they want you to upsell coffins. So, you know, we, we had an opportunity to, um, to become very well off. And I may well have had the opportunity to, to have bought the business or to have bought a business in the country or to have set up my own funeral business. Not out of the question. But then I'd, I'd done a few um, cot deaths. I'd um, had to... I'd done some traumatic funerals that everyone's aware of, you know, the boy on the horse, uh, the boy that tried to get into the car in Manny that was dragged and, oh, look, I did. And I I probably can't remember all the stuff I've done, but the cot deaths uh, for me were just the pits. 
so Christine and I had been offered the business. Yeah. We were on a roll. Um, we had an opportunity to, to make, you know, a massive income and live live the life. Um, and then one morning I, I got another cop death and I had to dress um, a little baby. The baby was from memory, maybe five months old. And the parents had given me a beautiful, uh, like a, like a short, like a christening dress, a very long dress. But this one had been passed down through many generations. It was probably at least a hundred years old, and I and I had to dress this little baby. And it is, I, I'm just trying to to imagine in life, if you think about all the the terrible things that, and most people don't get to. I mean, most people really don't get to to see all this stuff. Yeah. And um, so I'm doing this um, this cot death. Um, dressing the little baby, preparing the little coffin, you know, fixing up the little name tag, getting the little floral arrangement, which had to be a really tiny floral arrangement because it's a tiny coffin. And, um, you know, I'm looking down at the little baby and it just looks as though it's asleep. Um, you know, it's got... It just looks... Oh, it's just fucked. And then I, I went into to the office where Christine was and I and I basically again poor Christine I said you know let's can you come out and sort of you know like it's a sort of a it's a final someone's got to be there you think about you putting a a lid of a coffin on to this like it's just fucked so basically then and there on that day um Christine and she she understood completely. I mean, she was working there, um, and as I said, we 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 had the golden ticket. Everything was ahead of us. We were doing an incredible job. We were really good at it. Lots of empathy, and uh, we made the decision. I said to Christine, I said, oh, "This is it. I I just can't keep doing this." So that was my, and the analogy that I like to give Paul, and I know I've given it before, but I I need to say it once more, is that every time a human being on this earth, see something traumatic, you get a, an eyedropper yeah. and you put one drop into that container for every traumatic incident in your life. Now, most people, excluding emergency services, any, anyone in the, the, the medical world, certainly anyone that goes to war in conflict, mm-hmm. um, but most people... They never have to worry about filling up that container. However, with me, I got to the stage where um, I I was about to, you know, the the container had sort of gone above and there was that meniscus, that that surface tension that just holds on and holds on and doesn't let that, that, that fluid level break and then run down the sides. But then at a certain point, when you continually add drop after drop, and for me, these drops were happening. Police force, fire brigade, yeah, work cover, funeral industry. Plus, I was water skiing, and I lost a good friend in a water skiing accident. Yeah, I was riding high-powered motorbikes, um, skydiving, chasing adrenaline, and you know, I mean, just in the skydiving, having three malfunctions. So there—that's three more drops, bloody big drops. So then one day, and, and the listeners may recall that 
I mean, it wasn't that cot death. That that was kind of getting near where I realised that I really needed to to pull back. And and then, as the listeners may recall, my good friend cut his top lip. I tried to get him to hospital. Not not a major, uh, not a, not life threatening in the grand scheme of things. Not that major. But my entire body shut down. I went into shock. That's the first and last time I've um, I've gone into shock. So and you don't know when it's going to happen. So and and we just thought, no, can't. You quit. You quit. Quit. Stop doing it. Yeah. Walked out of there and thought, yeah, bloody great. I I just find it so interesting that you began dealing with death at the age of fourteen, which I didn't really. Again, listeners, I did not know this, and of course, because dad is a wildly unpredictable and frankly inaccurate at times storyteller it's obviously this is this stuff just occasionally crops up um you know details that contradict each other and you know i I think okay so you quit the funeral home and just just as a kind of postscript during the fire brigade era you were also running an antiques business now would it be safe to assume that once you quit kinsella and the fire brigade it was just antiques from then on um well when i was in the new south wales fire brigades and working at kinsella's we had two antique shops, one in Manly, one in Mossman. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, no, the antique business just um, it just kept rolling. And then um, then I got a job at the Sydney Opera House. Oh, shit, that's right. You were one of the heads of security at the Opera House. The stories you could tell about that place are bananas. The story one of, of which, the, yeah. I mean, you've told one of them on stage quite a few times. I think we should probably whip out some bonus episodes at some point in the future of your about your tenure there because it's like a, it's a weird mishmash between you know loose unit style crime weirdness but also just sort of a really insightful look at the Australian arts industry and you know also it all takes place in one of the most iconic landmarks in the world like the Sydney Opera House um, designed by Jan Utzen, is that right? Um, Brilliant pronunciation. Thank you. So um, he he designed the yeah, and you've just got the dad. The stories you've got about the Sydney Opera House are bananas. So I th- look, we'll deal with that at some point in the future. What I would like to do now is now that con- like chronologically, uh, John Verhoeven has uh, and Christine Verhoeven have both quit the funeral home industry. But what we're going to do next week is we kick off our new season of Loose Units. It's called Loose Units Origins, and Dad obviously. Loose Units and Electric Blue are, are books based on your stories. They are semi-fictionalized stories, you know, a, about a character based on you. And, the, you know, the stories are kind of the foundation for what the book becomes. We've had a few people reach out and say that um, they've read Electric Blue and they've noticed that a couple of the stories are very different to the way they happened in the podcast. Yeah, that's kind of, you know, that's kind of the point. Um, but the stories from Loose Units, the book, have never been told on this show before. So... Are you looking forward to going back to the beginning, Dad? <clears throat> Can't wait. I'm, I'm actually going to, um, prior to every week's, uh, we're going to do one chapter a week. Is that right? Yeah, that's so right. Yeah. I'm, oh, I'm, yeah, no, if the chapters are really short, we might do two, but mm, we'll... Um, yeah. mm. Well, I'm looking forward to rereading mm. um, because that's, that's the essence. That's, that's where this all began, Paul, all those years ago. This, mm. is, this was your first book. And what I would like to say to the listeners is, for God's sake... To participate fully in this um, kind of new twist to, to to the way these podcasts are heading, 
Um, I mean, I know the stories pretty well. For God's sake, they're pretty well about me, but I'm still going to read and brush up every single week. And it's going to be exciting. So can I implore you all, if possible, those of you that don't have loose units, the first book to go out and get it. Or go to your um, local library and grab. Yeah, a copy, or just, you know, just, okay. just, just, or, or you know, have. A, I mean, there are book clubs in Australia that are doing it, and I think it's a, it's a grand idea. Mm. Um, it's like in the future when we occasionally are going to talk about some, um, you know, some famous murders um, that maybe yes. that that everyone knows about, we, and, and and sort of give it our own slant. Yeah. I mean, people love that because it means that we can all really get involved and really kind of come along and. And, and we know that it's going to draw out more more stuff. And Paul, um, on a slightly different tangent, your your second book, mm. Electric Blue, um, it's really important, everyone, that you go into the the last section, the choose your own adventure. You have to <laughs> I do it. Gonna, I know. And I did it. Yeah. And it and it was I found it at times very very. It was like it's it, you know what it's like being trapped in a maze, and really. <laughs> Because I wanted to experience every possible um, ending. But you also, I mean, one of the things I wanted to do in the book is get you to understand, because I, throughout the process of Electric Blue, learned how your brain works. And I wanted to get you to help understand how my brain works. And the thing you said to me at the end of that part of the book was, I, I understand you now. After like 37 years, I finally understand you. Mm, yeah. um, would you say that's accurate? No, definitely. I think you've got a. A very complex mind. Um, <laughs> I think it's Thank in the you. genes. But um, look, it's, yeah. it's brilliant to be able to think outside the square. And, and we need mm. creative and imaginative people in this world. And I, well, I that's think what you, um, I mean, no, that's, that's what you are. Like, we, I think part of the thing that's become, I keep getting asked, um, there's a whole bunch of launch events coming up for Electric Blue, which came out like nine weeks ago, Dad. It's flown by, but um, there's a couple of launch events coming up. I'm doing the Sonnington Literary Festival next week. Um, I'm doing a thing for the Bendigo Literary Festival. Remember how we did that live show at Bendigo? One of my yes. favorite live mm. shows for loose mm. units. Yep, yep. And one of the things I keep getting asked is, um, are you and dad closer now than you were when you started the process? And when I first began the loose units electric blue thing, I was, I always said, Oh, we've always been close. What's funny is I didn't realize that we actually had a long way to go in terms Mm. of getting to know each other and, and, you know, and growing closer. And I think at this point now it's gone from father and son to like colleagues. I mean, Mm. I I don't ever want to really finish this. I don't know. I love it. I live for it. I love yeah. it. I actually, I, I find um, the two podcasts a week mm. mind-blowing. Yeah. And it's funny, Paul, because just so the listeners know, when I talk to you, like if I just call you, because I yeah. just feel like having a chat, yeah. um, I, I'm almost kind of in a weird way not wanting to say anything too exciting. Good. Yeah, I know. It's like know. we're having to save the material for, you know, it's like, I just Something love... Ha- Something happened last night, which I can't talk about on the show just yet. Suffice to say, it was real life true crime stuff that was happening around Tegan and I. And the first thing we did was call mum and dad, the two ex-cops, got onto FaceTime. And basically, the four of us sat there and talked our way through this insanely traumatic real world event that was unfolding around us, which hopefully at some point in the future, I can talk listeners through. And dad, I think you'll agree that it felt like I don't mean to sound gauche here, but it, it felt like an episode of the show. It felt no, like it, con- was, it felt like content. Yeah, and it was um, happening in real time and in real time. Yeah, and it made me realise that um, that I perhaps take my 
my knowledge of police procedure mm. for granted to a degree, but it also makes me realise that I may have been out of the New South Wales police force for a long time, but when this thing unfolded last night mm. with you and Tegan, yeah. we and we were we were actually preempting everything that unfolded in chronological order to the yeah. to the T, didn't we? Yeah, and there were certain things where I would I mean, I literally ran around and verified things and it felt like I know that sometimes with true crime listeners, you'll all know this feeling that uh, whenever you see a crime, you snap into sort of armchair detective mode and it's exhilarating. But for Dad and I and Mum and Tegan to sort of snap into the kind of mindsets that I mean, I've been writing a detective version, a, a, like a character version of Dad who has all these deductive skills. And Dad has spent many years in the emergency services. And I'd always sort of thought, how cool would it be to work a case with Dad? And yesterday, it kind of happened in a really weird way. And it felt exhilarating. And I think one really important final note here, listeners, is that the loose units thing, the whole loose units thing, the electric blue, the books... The show when it happens, the the podcasts, everything, uh, is just. I mean, it's a very real, overarching thing, and Dad and I are going to basically just try and infuse everything we do with that sort of, you know, with that kind of flavor, for lack of a better term. So that's why we're going back to do Lucy and its origins. We want to kind of go back to where it started and go back to the kind of classic '80s true crime stuff. And we're really excited to have you along for it. But in the future, we're going to explore all kinds of other avenues. Uh, and none of it will be possible without you. You've really all just—I mean—you've just made our lives so much better. It's been about three. It's been—it's been about three years of just incredible. Just you know, basically, it, it's been a big adventure. And thank you so much for coming with us on it. And thank you for listening to. Uh, loose units dead serious this season was really intense it began with a death and it ended with a death uh, and it's just been god it's been hectic so dad thanks for dead serious and i'll see you on friday for loose ends and then next week we begin loose units origins bloody awesome bloody awesome <laughs> see you yes, soon everyone I'm excited. cheers bye bye, <laughs> bye. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.